Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast featuring lead pastor Doug Sherman. For more information about Grace Harvest Church, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you as Pastor Doug shares this week's message. You know, last week we looked at the glory, the beauty, the power, and the wonder of creation in paradise. We discovered that God created a world for humanity that was everything we ever desired or needed. But the world today is not like that. How many of you have noticed that? Our world today is not like it used to be, not like it was in its first state. And today we're going to learn why everything is so different. Today we're going to learn about the fall of humanity, and because of the fall of humanity, subsequently, consequently I should say, the fall of all creation. We're going to see that when we fell, we drug it all down with us. We're going to see that sin and death are a result of choices made in the grand theater of a man, a woman, a serpent, and the creator who loved them. From the beginning, we're going to see that the Creator set in motion a salvation plan. And as humanity fell and darkness came upon the earth, God continued throughout the process of our fall to insert hope, to insert grace, and to to weave what theologians call a scarlet thread of redemption, this thread throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation of God's work in spite of human evil and human sin. So I want to start today by showing you a video from the Bible Project, and it covers Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Last week, we covered chapters 1 and 2. This week, we're going to go from chapter 3 through 11. Did you hear that? I'm going to preach actually nine chapters, if you include chapter 3. I'm going to preach nine chapters of the Bible today. So if you don't believe in miracles, you are about to observe one, Um, and you should pray. I would pray. Because I know some of you don't just want to have lunch, you want to get to dinner. So, um, so just pray. No, we'll be out of here on time, whatever that is, whatever time is, right? But we're going to meet the Lord in, in His Word. And I just want you to watch this video because it lays the foundation perfectly. The Bible Project, Genesis 1 through 11. Go ahead and get her going. The first book in the Bible is a book you've probably heard of. It's called Genesis. Genesis comes from a Hebrew word. Uh, it's pronounced reshit, uh, and it just means beginning. Now, there's a lot of stories from the book of Genesis, and it's easy just to pull out a specific story and, and try to tell you what it might mean. But we think the best way to understand this book is to look at the book as a whole and show you how the whole thing is designed. The book is designed to fall into two main parts. You have uh, chapters 1 through 11, which is telling the story of God and the whole world. And then you have the second part, which is about God and Abraham's family, as chapters 12 through 50. And how the two of those parts relate, that's where you find the message of the book. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. The first part of Genesis begins with a creation story, where God creates everything. And how exactly that happens, of course, that's where all the debates come. But he takes a dark, watery chaos, and he turns it into a beautiful garden where humans can can flourish. That sounds nice. It does sound nice. In fact, seven different times God says of all that he's made that it's good. 
And this is where we meet the first human characters in the Bible, Adam and Eve. They're, they're both individual characters, but they're also representative. Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity, and Eve is the Hebrew word for life. And God creates them in his image. In other words, humanity reflects or is meant to reflect the, the, the creativity, the goodness and character of the creator out into the world that he's made. And they're supposed to reproduce and make cultures and neighborhoods and art and gardens and, and everything else. But he gives them a, a moral choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And he tells them, don't eat of the fruit of this tree or you will die. What's that all about? So up till now, God has been the one defining and providing what is good. And so God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil. But now this tree represents a choice. Will the humans trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves? And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. This is the core biblical explanation for that concept of sin. That desire to call the shots myself it's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and my tribe, even if it's at the expense of you and, and your tribe. And the problem is humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. And so now that humanity's made this choice, things get really, really, they're really bad. So Genesis 3 through 11 is like tracing this downward spiral of all, all humanity. So Adam and Eve, they can't trust each other anymore. And so there's a little story about how they were naked and felt fine about it beforehand, but now they feel shameful because all of a sudden Adam's definition of good and evil might be different than Eve's. And so they hide from each other. Then there's another story of temptation. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and he gives in and kills him. There's a story right after Cain about a guy named Lamech. And all we know about Lamech is that he accumulates wives like property and he sings songs about how he's a more violent, vengeful person than Cain ever was. And he's proud of it. Things get so bad with the human race that we see God decide to just wipe us out. Yeah, we typically think of the flood story it's about God being angry, but it actually begins with God's sadness and grief about the state of his world. And so out of his passion to preserve the goodness of his world, he washes it clean with the flood. But there's a glimmer of hope. He, he chooses Noah and his whole family, and he saves them on this boat. Yeah, don't forget about the animals. Right, and the animals. So Noah and his family are going to reboot all of humanity. I mean, he must be a pretty great guy. But this is the story most people don't know because it's kind of weird is that Noah gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard and he gets totally plastered and then something sketchy happens in his tent with his son. It's a tragic story. So from here humanity grows again but things are as bad as before and the last story is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And in this story you have all of the nations uniting together to use this new technology they have, the brick. And they want to make a name for themselves and build this big city with a huge tower that will reach up to the gods. But God knows that this city will be a nightmare. And so in his mercy, he scatters them. And all of these stories, they're underlining the same basic idea. When humans seize autonomy from God, when they define good and evil for themselves, it results in a world of tragedy and death. And this leaves you wondering... 
is there any hope for humanity? Yes. Yeah, there is. It's the very next story that answers that question. It's the beginning of God's mission to rescue and restore his world. Amen. Isn't that good? That lays a great foundation, and I'm going to kind of retell a lot of what was told in the video uh, to you now from the Scripture. But before I go there, I want to remind you of one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this series and, and talk about uh, creation as it was originally intended to be in the fall, and that is because many of us still think, and listen carefully to this, but many of us still think we can create our own Eden. And in fact, without realizing it, we strive our entire life to create our perfect little world, our perfect relationship, our perfect children, our perfect job, our perfect retirement. The idea in our mind is we're going to make the world what we want it to be. We're going to conform it to our own image, and we're going to try to kind of bust down the barriers back into Eden and get back there and make a perfect world. And then we're shocked. We're shocked when people betray us. We're shocked when relationships go wrong. We're shocked when the stock market crashes and we lose our retirement. We're shocked when a loved one uh, receives a diagnosis from a doctor that they have a terminal disease or we receive that. We're shocked when we see a child go through incredible suffering and we find ourselves looking at all of those things and being amazed almost like it's not supposed to happen because we think we live in a, a paradise and we forget that we don't live in a paradise. We live in a bent and broken, fallen world where sin came into human beings and when we fell, we dragged it all down with us. And so now as much as we try, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to love God and love our neighbors ourselves with the power of the Holy Spirit helping us. I'm not saying God doesn't want to take us there because He does. He wants to take us ultimately back to the garden, but He's the only one that's going to get us there. And our little private ventures to conform the world into our own image, to make people do what we want them to, to do, our jobs and relationships to kind of bend the world to our own image never works. And just about the time we feel like, ah, we finally got it, and we're spinning all of our plates, and we've got life figured out, one of them comes crashing down. It's really important that we understand that because then we can find Christ in the midst of the bentness and the brokenness. We can find Jesus redeeming because that's what he came to do. He came from heaven to earth to get into the dirt with us, to get into the mess with us, and to begin to lift it all up with him. Amen? So we have to go back to the first story, the original one, and that is the fall. A man, a woman, a snake, and sin. And then we have to see that at the end of that story, there's hope. And what I want to show you today is at the end of each of these stories, God inserts redemption. He inserts hope. He touches or puts his hand on a human being who foreshadows Christ. A person that points us to Jesus, because what I'm hoping we'll get as we go through this Old Testament series, as we, as we track through the Old Testament, is we'll get that Jesus is weaving himself all through the story and showing up in symbols, types, shadows, and people all throughout the Old Testament. He's there all along, and you'll see him in this story as well. Amen? So Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, it's a long text of Scripture, but I want to read the Bible to you today because it's powerful and it's alive. 
Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we know here that the serpent is represented, representative of a figure that appears throughout the Bible, the devil, Satan. Um, in the book of Revelation, we learn that that serpent of old, the writer says, is the dragon that appears in the book of Revelation. So we know that that's Satan, and this dragon is always against the people of God. So the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, I know some of you are like, she was talking to him? That's just weird. Yeah, I know. The Bible's got some weird stories in it. Amen. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You ever found yourself when you're reading that story going, okay, what was Adam doing? Duh. You know, I mean, my wife is talking to a snake. And I, I mean, was his finger up his nose? Was he, what was he doing? He was right there. The scripture indicates it. Okay, so um, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Fig leaves are pretty big. They're about like this big around. So perfectly covered some, you know, particular spots on the body. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence. Notice that. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And I've, I've often in my own life heard God say that. Have you ever heard God say, where are you? And he's not saying it because he can't find you. He's saying it because he wants you to locate yourself. Where are you? You ever said that to somebody you love? Where are you? What are you thinking? Why are you? That's what he's saying. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now we have fear. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now I'm hiding. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And we see the art of passing the buck immediately. It's right there. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We know that man was made from the dust of the earth. We know that the serpent is representative to us. Whenever we see a serpent, we are reminded of the story of a beast that became, you know, um, that, that was put to, what's the word I'm looking for? That was relegated to the earth to eat dust all the days of his life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's, that, that's a war. That's a battle between you and the woman. And between your offspring, this is very important, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the Hebrew word there, bruise, can also be translated crush and strike. And so you'll crush 
the serpent's head. The, the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Excuse me, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, just some thoughts real quickly. And I wish I had time to really break down this section, but I'm just going to hit on a couple of highlights here. And the first is that it says the serpent was crafty and deceived the woman to disobey God. And I want to tell you the serpent has never changed his tactics. His desire is still to undermine the authority of Scripture in our life and to appeal to our desire to be like God, to think we know better, to think we understand life better, to think that we have a better plan, a better plan than God's Word, that we can figure it out without God. Thank you very much. Secondly, Adam was present and he took the fruit as well. He didn't try to intervene. He took of the fruit and fell together with his wife into sin. Adam and the woman were filled with shame, and they hid from God. They hid among the trees and covered themselves with fig leaves. And here's the reality of our lives. We've been hiding from God ever since. This so perfectly captures the human condition. We say of God at times, why is God so distant? Why has he left us? Why doesn't he love us? Why does he seem to allow so many horrible things to happen on this planet? But the reality is, the human story is we've been running from God, rebelling from God, hating God since the time that we said, we want that. And that's the human story. We run from God, and God pursues because God loves. Amen? And then God curses the serpent, judges the woman and the man, and curses the earth. All of creation seems to have been affected by Adam and the woman's sin. The earth began to fight us. Pain comes through our children, not just in childbirth, but but through life. And we have the battle of the sexes begin at that point, and death begins its reign. And let me just point something out. It wasn't like God was saying, listen, I'm going to make you live this way now, Adam and the woman. He's saying, you've partaken, death has come into you, this is going to be the consequence and the natural reaction of what's going to happen. Your wife is going to wrestle and struggle with you, you're going to try to dominate her, there's going to be this battle of the sexes, and it's going to take place through human history. Apart from redemption, that's our state. Am I talking to anybody? And then he promises that the serpent will be crushed through the woman's offspring. Now, this is really key. And he clothes the man and the woman in a sacrifice. You'll miss it. You have to read between the lines, but verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy in the Bible of the coming of Messiah. Theologians call it the proto-evangelon. And what it, what it means is it, it's a picture of the offspring of the woman, who is Jesus, and the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. And there will come a time, Satan, there will come a time at the cross, and we know this is what happened, that the serpent struck Jesus' heel on the cross, and, and Jesus died, but in his death, 
He crushed the power of darkness. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And he released all those who were subject to bondage their whole life because of the fear of death. Through his death, he defeated death. And so we see that victory there. But then something interesting, verse 21, and it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, some people will uh, disagree with this. They'll say, God just made skins out of nothing. But I really believe that this is the first foreshadowing of a sacrifice for covering. And so I believe that what happened is right at that moment, God slayed an animal. And as he slayed that animal and its blood poured from it and it became lifeless, they observed for the first time what death looked like. Because the garden and God's world was never supposed to have death. But now death comes into the world, the animal is killed, it is skinned. I I, I have a tendency to think it was skinned and there was still blood on it. And then God takes those skins and he clothes the man and the woman and he covers them, foreshadowing the coming of the Lamb of God who would be slain to cover the sins of the world. And then what's he do? He expels the man and the woman from the Garden of Eden. He drives them out. And this is the beginning of the downward spiral that sin brought into the world. It goes downhill from here. It just gets worse. God drove them out. He blocked the way into the Garden of Eden, and an angel and flaming sword blocked the way into the land of paradise, delight, and pleasure. And we've been trying to get back there ever since, and it just doesn't work. Amen? Which takes me to the next thing, the next step of fallen, and it's what was talked about in the video, envy and murder between brothers. Immediately, we see that we like to kill each other. Immediately, we see the first war. We see Cain rise up and kill his brother Abel in the field because they both offered to God what they had to offer. Cain offered some some fruit from the earth, fruits and vegetables from the earth. Abel offered an animal. Cain's offering wasn't proper. It wasn't according to a right heart condition. And when he offered it, he offered it wrongly. So God merely said to him, Cain, fix your offering. Make it right and everything will be okay. But he received Abel's offering and he didn't receive Cain's offering. So Cain, what's he do? Instead of, of course, he can't strike at God. So he strikes at God's image bearer. He strikes at his brother. And he slays him and he kills him and the blood of Abel pours into the earth and it speaks to God. And God comes to Abel and he says, where's your brother? And he says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And he says, your brother's blood is talking to me from the earth. And since you've killed your brother, you're going to wonder. So now it's not just being pushed outside the garden. Now I'm going I'm to push us out even further because we're bloodthirsty. you got to wonder. You have to experience the life of wondering. And so... Cain goes out into the world, and then we hear later on about Lamech. Lamech kills even more, and he boasts about it, and he praises it. And so we see immediately the human condition is that we kill, we take, we strive with one another, we want what belonged to others, and ultimately it looks pretty hopeless and pretty sad. But then right at the end, and I I want you to see this because it's a pattern you see throughout Genesis. Right at the end, we see God insert hope. It says later in the chapter, in fact, I'll read the text to you. Verse 25 of that chapter, chapter 4 says, And Adam knew his wife again. That's language for, they had sexual relations. They, They were intimate. Adam knew his wife again. 
And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So something interesting happens. Seth is born, and this is the offspring. Lamech is the offspring of Cain, and he's a killer. Seth is the offspring of Adam and Eve. And then he has a son named Enosh. And Enosh, after his birth, something happens in the earth. People who are walking away from God begin to turn to God. And they begin to worship him. They begin to call on the name of Yahweh. They begin to worship God. What happened? I, I believe this is kind of like the first revival in the Bible. This is the first time you see God right, working to, to turn a people, actually turn their heart toward him. And um, what's interesting is when you look at their name, Seth means to set in place a foundation. And it's like they were saying, we're going to start again. He was the new foundation and the new beginning. He was the second chance son. And we're going to start a new foundation. With him. And then Enosh, and I, I've, I thought this was interesting when I first read it, but Enosh means average man, average male. It's a generic, mortal, average, representative man. The text implies that there was nothing special about Enosh and that God did something powerful in his time that was not dependent upon him in any way, shape, or form. It was totally what we call grace. God's favor, God's kindness, God's goodness, not based upon anything we can do, but based upon everything that he can do. Right? And at that time, it says, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So right in the midst of this darkness, this murder, this killing, God says, I'm going to intervene and bring forth an average man. And in that average man's time, people are going to turn to me and begin to call out to me. And then things go down from there. And darkness begins to fill the earth. And God has to judge. And we know the story of Noah and the ark. And I, well, I'm going to go ahead and read it, okay? So are, are you ready to read the Bible? Yeah. Reading the Bible's good. It says, verse uh, 5 of chapter 6 says this, And the Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, I want to tell you, that language, that Hebrew language is really strong. We read it, no, that's, that's sad. No, it's, it's much more than that. It's like God is like, oh, it's just so saddened. Why? He's watching us. We're killing each other raping, pillaging at war. We're destroying his creation. We're trampling it down and God's heart is broken. And this is what I really believe. I believe that that story shows us a picture of mercy. God, the, the, the flood shows us a picture of mercy. It was God keeping our self-destructive way. We were going to destroy the earth. The earth would have been wiped out and destroyed if we'd been left to our own devices. And God intervenes. God intervenes because we are doing so, so many horrible things to one another. And then it goes on to say, And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it talks about Noah's generations. And in verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside now with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which, the breath of li- in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so we see that in the midst of this real dark time, God chooses a man and his family. And as we heard, even after he chose that man and his family and he preserved the earth, even they went south. Even they went wrong. Noah got drunk. I mean, fall down drunk. And some other stuff happened. And it's, it's, it's really sad. But in the midst of it, and this is really interesting, in the midst of it, God established hope. In the midst of that great darkness, he established an ark, which an ark is a type and a shadow of Jesus, an ark to save us from the flood and the time we're in. And Noah, his name means rest. At the end of the first creation, God rested. At the beginning of the new creation, God rested in Noah, for his name means rest. So God's saying, okay, we've destroyed, we're starting anew. This is a renewal project, and we're going to start it with my son, rest. And he rescues creation and humanity. And then we go to the last story, a city and a tower to the God of self. And it says in Genesis 11, verses 4 through 9, Then they said, the the people on the earth, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name, notice this, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Isn't that a great word? Babel. You ever babbled before? Now you know where it came from. Actually, the word to Babylon comes from Babylon, to Babel. And because the Lord confused the language over all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So people of one heart and mind built a city and a tower to the God of self. This was their way of saying, let us make a name for ourselves because we don't need you, God. Because the ultimate sin within the Bible is the sin of idolatry. And idolatry is to form a God or your ideas about God into your own image of what God looks like. And we all do it at different times. We all have intellectual images. Like we, we say things like this. Well, if God's like that, he's not my God. And right at that moment, we form and shape our own God based upon our own preferences and our own desires. And these people were saying, God, we don't want you in our lives. We don't want anything to do with you. We are our own masters. We are over our own destiny. And all they did was bring the full fruit, the fruition of what Adam and Eve seized in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is now making itself known in this tower to the heavens. This tower to the heavens is man self-promoting himself. We're going to go high. We're going to go up there. We're going to gaze up there into the stars. We're going to look up there and we're going to do it all without you, God, because we got this. This is our planet. 
And that, that's the ultimate sin of humanity. A city and tower meant to make a name for humanity apart from God is the ultimate idolatry. This was an attempt to establish complete separation and autonomy from God. This was the decision within the Garden of Eden coming to fruition. In effect, they were saying, we don't need you or want you, God. Get out of our lives. And yet, in the midst of that, and this is where I end, right at the end of that chapter, as it seems to be getting worse, this character comes on the scene named Abram. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 and verse 31, it says, And Terah fathered Abram, verse 31, And Terah took Abram his son, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And then God begins again by sending Abram to a new and blessed land. Genesis 12, 1 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And he begins again. He picks this man named Abram, who he changes the name of to Abraham. And through Abraham comes Isaac. And through Isaac comes Jacob. And through Jacob comes 12 sons. And those 12 sons become 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes become Israel. And then we see the story of God with the nation of Israel. And next week we'll get into that. We'll get into the promise of God to begin to restore through a people known as Israel. Amen? So right at the end of the story, we have Abram, which means exalted father, and Abraham means father of many nations. And God says this to him, and I'll get into this next week, but he says to Abraham, he says, through you, all the families and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then we learn later that blessing is Jesus. Jesus is the seed Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Jesus is the one that they were promised. He's the one. He's the offspring that crushes the serpent's head and restores things. He's the ark of God. He is the Enosh, the, 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 the man, the average man who dies and gives his life for us to restore us. He's all of those things and more. Amen? See, the world and people started perfectly went bad through a talking serpent, slid downward to murder, evil, and destruction, and then tried to rise again in proud and selfish strength without God. In the midst of it all, God chose common people to work His salvation and grace through. God is still saving His fallen world by Jesus working through common people like you and me. And that's the beauty of the ultimate story. Jesus is the story of the Bible. If you've ever wondered, what's the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is Jesus. He's on every page. He's in every chapter. He's all through there, showing up consistently to redeem and restore humanity. Why don't you stand with me?